Welcome to another episode of the Jordy and Josh podcast. Jordy, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Pretty good. It's uh, it's um, the end of the week, and it's nice to be able to take a break a little bit this weekend. But um, what are we here for? I wanted to talk to you. We wanted to talk. We've been doing these really interesting podcasts. We were talking about language today and what that means in terms of how we embrace it from our perspectives. Uh, we're both teachers. I'm also a journalist. You're a geographer. And we interact with language all the time in terms of how we talk to people and how people talk to us. And I think we have some sort of strong views about how language is is judged in our culture in terms of the words we use and the words we don't use and so that's sort of the genesis of how we got started uh, talking about this and so I guess I just wanted to sort of sort of throw it out there uh, with you and just sort of have a conversation about what what does language mean to you in the context of 2022 and how judgy everybody is about everything everybody does all the time if you use the wrong word people freak out um and just sort of how dangerous that is yeah um well and i think how judgy everyone is now about language is the same for any period of time right we use language as a way to separate and divide people whether it's dividing them based on you know class and social class or level of education, whether it's a way of sort of identifying who's educated, who's not educated, um, formally educated. Uh, we use it as a way to, to, you know, regional accents or regional um, vernaculars that can tell you something about where a person is from is also used as a way to divide and create elitist ideas of like, oh no, but we're from over here, which means that somehow we're this much better. And you can tell that from the way that we speak so language today is used definitely to judge and to separate but I think that's always been as long as we've been speaking uh we've used it as a way to, to I think humans use any tool they can to separate each other and to create hierarchies and language is a very easy tool since we have to use language to communicate with one another so it's an easy very easy way to sort of pick out and separate and define and so today we could look at like today as in this current time in history, we could look at how we use the old sort of version of separating, figuring out, oh, are you speaking grammatic and, you know, grammatically, I'm not even going to say grammatically correct, correctly. Uh, <laughs> um, our, are you speaking in a way that identifies you as part of a political movement, as part of a conservative or liberal or, you know, hyper conservative? No, I shouldn't say hyper conservative. What's the term I'm looking for? Ultra. No. Yeah, there you go. An ultra liberal. Um, Radical. If, Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> if I say anything about not when, wanting to wear a mask, does that put me in a camp of being an anti-vaxxer, even if I'm 100% for vaccinations, but I just don't want to wear an N95 mask when I'm trying to communicate with people so that they can like see the full range of my face, for example, uh, that would be 
you know, one example where you might be afraid to express your opinion on something just, and now, see, now, now I'm getting into the, to the realm of like, oh, but it's for public safety. No, I get that. Like, <laughs> can, but can we have a conversation about how it's uncomfortable, even if we understand that wearing a mask is necessary for public safety? Can I just say it's uncomfortable without being put into a, into an anti-vaxxer pro-Trump category. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it, so yeah, we could talk about the way that we use language to politically divide or put you in one camp versus another camp. It's language, one big thing about language is it's very binary, you know, it's, or it's used in a way to create binaries. It's used in a way to create like, are you with us or are you against us? And there's not a real gray area a lot of the time. That's one of the ways that we use language. So, so yeah, there's a lot of, talking about language today, there's a lot of ways that we divide people based on words that we use or certain key phrases that we might use that put us in a woke or not woke or a ultra conservative or an ultra liberal or whatever. Even, you know, think about those signs that people put on their front lawns, you know, um, where they'll say all these things like, uh, we believe love is love. We believe Black Lives Matter. We believe, and that's great. Like that's a one. Those are wonderful things to express. Um, but it's almost like putting yourself in a linguistic camp. Camp that's saying like I'm on this side. Like very mm -hmm. clearly using language and specific phrases that say like, oh, you're one of these people. I can trust you. I can talk to you. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be good as a safe haven if you think about different ways that we've communicated in the past when you can't. Well, I could get into like nonverbal types of communication too, like ways that that when you can't say something out loud, when you can't say like, I'm safe for you as let's say a gay person. If we're looking at periods in history where being gay or places in the world where being gay is literally something you can be killed for, mm -hmm. there's nonverbal ways to sort of say like, I am a safe person to come to. I, you know, like the pink flamingo, I don't know if you're aware that the pink flamingo was a sign that you were pro gay rights back oh. in the day. So having like a pink flamingo on your on your front lawn um, was a way of telling people that you were either gay or you were gay friendly. So oh. yeah. We have one in the backyard. It's a swimming pool thing. So that's good to know. Double meaning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it's funny because you reminded me with the signs. And then of course, everything in life, I always go back to Seinfeld and <laughs> this TV show, which I like. Um, I was talking to you about, you know, off camera, but there's that episode, I don't know if you've seen it, you're speaking of language, where, and symbols is when he's doing the AIDS walk, Kramer's doing the AIDS walk, and his whole thing is, I'm not going to wear the AIDS ribbon, and the oh, whole yeah. premise of the episode is, how are you not going to wear the ribbon? Right. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm walking, I'm raising money, I'm volunteering, I'm giving my time, but he wasn't wanting to do the group think thing and wear the ribbon and, and you know they're just like put it on and so like they attack him and they beat him up and he you know and it's sort of I think pointing out like are we judging actions or are we judging symbols and I think that's part of what happens and I think in our role as teachers we have to take the secondary sort of approach which is we can't judge we're not there to judge the careful communication and articulation of our students because young people I mean people of all ages but people who are 18 19 20 they're formulating their ability to to think and to to write to communicate to speak and 
when you are doing that, you make mistakes or you you do trial by error and you talk out loud. And of course, the greatest growth that we have with students, and this translates to people in general, is feeling safe to be able to talk without judgment. Because if you can talk without judgment, then you will express more. You will give more. If you judge a student too early, and I'm sure we've we've made this mistake, every teacher on the planet has made this mistake. If you interrupt that student while they're expressing something super important to them, maybe they pause or they are struggling or they're using words that you're like, you know, that doesn't make sense. If you stop them, you'll shut them down. And I think one of the challenges of language is that too often people, adults, just like really smart people will hear somebody say something and say, you're not using the right term. So therefore you can't be part of this conversation. And that's really dangerous because that's actually a very privileged to use a language term. That's a very privileged approach to be able to say, you're not speaking this way. Therefore, you can't be part of this conversation or I'm going to judge you because we don't know people's backgrounds. We don't know people's education levels. We don't know what they've been taught and unlearning things is a real thing. If you've been taught your entire life to speak a certain way, and then now you're exposed to new people, well, you don't overnight adopt the new language and vocabulary of what's politically correct and acceptable. It's an evolution. And so for me, when we talk about that, I, I I think we need to give people more grace in the terms that they use, more forgiveness. And if it's so horrible that they're using words that we don't like, let's talk to them about it. Let's have a conversation about it. Right. Yeah. You have to think, you know, what is the goal here? So if somebody says something that, let's say we're talking about <clears throat> anti-misogyny, we're talking about something that that uh, words or phrases or ways of speaking that negatively impact um, a certain gender or a certain group of people based on sexuality, whatever. Um, if somebody doesn't use the right terminology that puts them in the camp of, oh, they get it, they understand, if they're on that, on that, hopefully on that path to learning to understand and understand other perspectives and why certain things are important, and you shut somebody down because they use a phrase that doesn't that you know feels archaic feels like oh why are you saying that you shouldn't that's so 10 years ago mm -hmm. uh, you have to think what is the goal is the goal to create allies is the goal to spread awareness and understanding or is the goal to just know that you are the correct person that you get it and the rest of the world doesn't get it so um as a as an instructor, as a teacher, right, I always tell my students in the beginning of the class, and I remind them like throughout class, depending on the class, especially like in my human geography class or world regional geography class, we'll talk about things that are, you know, we'll talk about race and racism, we'll talk about sexism, we'll talk about women around the world. And I always say like, everyone in this class, we need to keep in mind that we are putting the most charitable construct on our neighbors, that we are trying, that if they say something that to us doesn't sound as advanced as we are in our understanding, then 
you want to think like, no, but they're trying to learn because that's the goal in this classroom is that somebody is trying to learn. And that if you shut somebody down, what you've most likely done is just shut off an ally, a possible ally, instead of encouraging an ally. I remind students of that over and over again, especially when we start talking about the stuff that makes people really sort of like scared to speak out or scared to sort of like if I say, if I say to a class, which I often do, like, what is race? What does the term race mean? <clears throat> then I'll just get silence because people don't want to say the wrong thing. So I remind them, like, remember, we're in here to learn. And you're never going to learn if you don't, like, if you don't walk yourself through what, what you're thinking, if you don't allow yourself to express that. Another thing I make sure students know <clears throat> in the beginning and all through class is when you're writing me a paper, I'm not an English teacher. I'm not here to judge your grammar or your, you know, whatever your sentence structure, if you put it in a proper, proper essay form or whatever, uh, I want you to get your thoughts out. So as long as that doesn't look like some <laughs> long, <laughs> you know, two page full sentence, like you just are coming off of Molly and took a bump of Coke and, you know, you like write it out on your phone at three in the morning, as long as it doesn't look like that mm -hmm. I, and I can read it. Um, that's, you know, that's all I want you to worry about is getting your thoughts out on paper so that we, so that I, so that you can think. Um, I used to teach English as a second language to refugees. So I used to work for this organization. I taught ESL to refugees and I learned pretty early teaching <clears throat> classrooms full of students who often didn't speak the same language, that the way that we teach English, we start, we, we front load it with grammar and with, and this is any, any language. If you were teaching French or German or whatever, you would front load it with grammar and with uh, conjugation, verb conjugation and all that good stuff. And I realized that nobody is going to get to a level of comfort with the language and like a level of comfort where they can conjugate verbs if they're not comfortable with like saying at least a couple of words. So I started teaching those classes where we would just have conversations at first. And, you know, the <clears throat> verb conjugation, sorry, <clears throat> and grammar and everything was all over the place. But the the goal was to get people comfortable so that they can could then kind of learn the rules. You know, think about it. Think about any game. If you're learning ping pong, <clears throat> and uh, I'm just reminded of my nephew and my daughter having this ping pong game about a year ago, and you know, like they could barely hit the ball back and forth to each other, and my nephew was so just focused on the rules of the game where everything was like, no, that's out, that's, and I was like, why don't you just like hit the ball back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and kind of like focus on <laughs> getting to a point where you could actually have a rally before you bring in all the rules, because otherwise you're never going to get to a point where you can play the game and apply the rules. He wasn't very happy with this. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, it's kind of the same thing with language or with, with with learning a new ideology, learning something is if you're if you don't get to a point where you're comfortable speaking about it, then how are you going to learn the rules and the correct terms and the correct whether it's the correct terms for an ideology, whether it's the correct terms for lang like the rules of a language, um, whether it's the correct rules for anything, you have to be able to play around, think about something, tinker with something before you can get to a point where you can then 
kind of perfect how you're presenting it. Yeah, and and on the the issues that that's that's those are good points. And the ping pong analogy is perfect because if you ever played with somebody who's like over fixated on rules and anything, and you're just like, I just have fun here. I just want to play. If you just have that part of it, then you're more likely to be like, okay, what are the rules? But when we're talking about these big things, the so language, there's little words we use, but there's also change that needs to happen. You know, when we're talking about issues of gender pronouns or trans rights, there's always these debates over languages, okay? And the people who get the most attention in that debate are the most ignorant people who use the wrong terms and they're like, woman is woman and man is man. And those are the ones that need to feel like they can have a conversation where they can be educated about it. Because if we just cut them off and say, you're dumb, you don't understand, right? Right. That's not growth. And if you want growth, you're going to have to, we may not want to, and it may be unfair. And it's like, why do we got to bend over backwards for these people who've been systemically oppressing people for generations? Okay, fine. But if you actually want to change them, you're going to have to talk to them so they can get to the point where they're like, oh, I get it, you know, and, and that happens. But if you just cut them off and call them dumb and racist and bigots instantly, well, you've lost them, you know, and they're never, and you can't just wait for them to die. That's not like good manners. I mean, that's not, that's not a way to uh, try to create change for everyone who's involved. And well, in my experience, most not people- Not a solution either, sorry. Yeah. Just yeah. Well, in, in my experience, sometimes- the most hardened people will change if you just take the time to explain that to them in a way where they feel safe enough to say, actually, I don't understand it. And then you're like, oh, now I know where all your stupid hatred comes from. You just don't understand it. Let's help you understand. And I think that's part of it. We had these conversations with feminists, remember in the, the 80s and 90s, like if you were a feminist, what did that mean? Okay. And then we had to redefine the term. Men are feminists too, right? Doesn't mean you're, you know, weak. Doesn't mean you're anything. It just means that you, as much as women, support equality for women. And that's a good thing, right? But some men see the word feminist as meaning like whatever stereotype in the late 80s they thought it was a feminist was marching in parades doing you know and so right. i think that's part of it is just like this patience of understanding of like stop we well, sorry yeah go ahead. well and well a couple of things so you know one um i would say that lots of people not just men but all people will do that with either the term feminist or you know you find plenty of um of people who have internalized misogyny and don't want to be associated with that term either. But uh, but with the issue of, you know, whether it's talking about trans people or um, issues, different issues that particularly affect marginalized groups, there's, I, I want to um, clarify that what 
we're saying or what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say, isn't so much that trans people need to have that conversation, you know, that I can understand how a trans person wouldn't necessarily want to explain to some bigoted person, right, like what it means to be trans or what it means to be female or, or male and how their term is archaic and is sexist and is limiting to everybody, not just trans people, but to everybody to define, let's say women, for example, as somebody who can who has a working uterus, I mean, that's not even all cis women, you know, if we're going to talk about what it is to be female, why are we still defining being a woman by her reproductive capabilities? I mean, not all women can reproduce for many reasons, either they don't have a uterus, their uterus isn't working, their uterus is past working, the uterus never started working, you know, like, we are so much more than just our ability to reproduce so there's there's a there's a lot of harm in trying to be so specific about defining what it means to be female and it's harm to everyone but um but yeah i can understand how people who have been traumatized for whether it's uh whether it's you know racist trauma sexist trauma transphobia homophobia uh and may not want to explain to someone it's the same thing with sexual assault you know you people wonder why somebody who has been sexually assaulted doesn't come out and talk about it for years and years I mean it's traumatic and you have to defend yourself when you're the victim right so I can understand that that's why being an ally is so important because we can have those conversations we can people who who uh who aren't directly impacted by let's say transphobia can have those conversations where we can explain to somebody and be maybe patient with somebody and also understand that maybe 70% of people actually want to understand, but there's going to be a 30%. And that's true. I think in any educational experience, whether it's in a classroom, whether it's teaching people how to farm, whether it's teaching people why trans people are people, um, it, there's always going to be a 30% that just does not want, will, will not, you know, you cannot reach. But if you, as an ally are thinking about that other 70%, that that 70% of people who might just be ignorant, who might have their own trauma. I think that a lot of people who are homophobic, transphobic, sexist have trauma around, let's say we're talking about like a sexist cis man, right? So, uh, you know, they might have their own trauma around their masculinity and that that they've been conditioned to believe that masculinity is something that's toxic that needs to be shown through brute force or through anger or through you know pounding people hi <laughs> uh, so um if as allies or as a person who feels they can talk about talk somebody through that and like talk through that that hatred and that that uh anti whoever sentiment, um, that's a great thing. But the expectation that anybody should be able to do that, like people who have trauma around their gender, around their sexuality, around their around their experience, whatever it is, that that's why allies are important is is that we need to be with people who can have those conversations. So when I see trans people, for example, not want to talk about those things. I'm like, okay, I get it. When I see people who aren't trans, who are just speaking for the trans um, community, 
be overwhelmed and just shut somebody down i'm like what kind of an ally like again what is the goal like mm -hmm. if your goal is to be an ally what what are you doing you know um yeah so so the question is are we spending as a society too much time on this 30 percent? you know that's because right they're never going to change um then that's you know maybe we say well we're, that's not going to happen um oh, and, oh, oh. well i think if that 30 percent has no power then yeah we are mm -hmm. but is that 30 percent you know disproportionately re representing us in congress or disproportionately representing us in in politics or uh in corporate policy then then yeah that's a concern it's where is that 30 percent where are those 30 percent of people who are just not going to budge on this and and you know they're not probably concentrated all in positions of power but that is that is one big issue is when we see like where is this 30 percent? where are these people who are just not going to listen or not going to think about change um are they disproportionately affecting us and then what do we do about that right? yeah and that's 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 donald trump right that's the that's sort of like, yeah. and he attracts too you know he's become well he's become a voice for right. for for that sort of way of thinking i was thinking about how he made fun of toilets remember he on one of his one of his tirades he was talking about uh like um low flow toilets mm -hmm. which is a, a real not only is it a necessity we need to get rid of freshwater toilets all together especially here in the southwest i mean it is just ridiculous that we take potable water that we can drink and we literally uh crap in it right <laughs> um so there's that whole issue but i remember him making fun of uh toilets and low flow toilets like it was almost like he was trying to tap into this idea of toxic masculinity as like they're trying to change weaken us by weakening the flow of water that's coming through <laughs> that's coming through our toilets you know it's like what what is your problem with efficiency in toilets like why is this something how is this why is this an issue <laughs> well, and, and how is it tapping into a psyche how are there people who are like yeah we need more water <laughs> literally fresh water that we're going to dump down our toilets um so yeah he's he's speaking to a specific constituency that is maybe that constituency that's not going to be reachable but are they going to be responsible for the next presidential election? Because then, yeah, we do need to worry how to how to reach these people or how to how to yeah. You know, there's 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 words that have meanings that we get all worked up about. Okay, that you know, as a society, and we've seen like words come up in our culture about centering people and um you know uh the word woke obviously comes up it's it's actually some people say just white people using the word woke is appropriation because right. it's a black term and when you use it you should not be not you but just people should not be using it to, well, to no, just we... put people in a category um when they have no idea of the origin of the word and what it actually means and so there's those kind of words, but then there's like more basic stuff. And, and I'm interested in sort of like you as a parent, you know, we did our parenting podcast too. It's like, 
how do you deal with uh language like the f word or you know shit or all these other words that we kind of have euphemisms for and how do you deal with that in terms of like do you shelter your 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 daughter uh, what about the classroom do you have rules for like you can't have a potty mouth in the classroom like you, you get five f words a class and then i'm cutting you off i mean do those words have any um impact in, in terms of should should we because we do judge people right if, if if you walk into a job interview and you just start dropping the f-bomb you're not right. getting the job okay no. but yet you you become you get the job and you become friends with that person and you you know you go on a business trip and you're taking a road trip and you drop the f-bomb they're like well that's normal this is so, so we know people use those terms but yeah. what are your thoughts on those like George Carlin, seven words, you know, that, that people avoid. Well, so if I were to apply that rule of like five F words in my classroom, I would have to follow that rule. And I definitely <laughs> don't. <laughs> uh, um, so with, it's funny with my daughter, you know, she's 15 and uh, she never swears in front of me. And I know she swears, like, I know she swears to other people. Um, but she will never swear in front of me. And I, I really wonder why that is because I've been swearing in front of her since she was born and before. I mean, uh, my, so swear words are, are a very interesting part of understanding culture. I always tell students, you know, if you want to really understand a culture, you first want to like kind of get like, what is this culture about? What is the society about? Look at language, but specifically look at their swear words and music, of course, look at music. But specifically look at what a culture thinks is a bad word because words are, you know, language is so interesting. We make it up. It's 100% human created. And then we decide that some words are bad and some words are good and some words are, you know, whatever. And so we make this thing up and then we're like, but nobody can say it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but if you look at what swear words mean, and we kind of assume the F word, for example, is a word that you would find in any language, but it's not true at all. Like, so so the F word means sex. Uh, and so the assumption that every language thinks that the worst word that's, if we thought about the F word as the worst word that's not specific to a marginalized group, right? What does it say about our culture that the worst thing you could say, as long as it's not attached to a marginalized group, is uh, sex, right? Like, what does that say about our culture? And so, and it's not true for every culture. If we look at Georgia, for example, not the state, but the country. The worst thing you can say is your mom. Mm. Um, it's so bad to say your mom that people don't use it. Like they don't use the proper term when they're trying to, sometimes you have to talk about your mom, <laughs> like your mom went to the store, but they'll say, mom, your went to the store because it's mm. such a negative thing to say your mom. Mm -hmm. So that tells you a lot about that culture, right? Is clearly your mom is somehow so important that she's also become the dirtiest worst thing that you could talk about i mean you could go in and culturally analyze what's going on there or if we went to northern europe um scandinavian languages the worst thing you can talk about is god or not having god so when we look at like language it tells us a lot about culture or if you look at cultures that have been you know 
completely thrown out of their homeland or have no homeland have gone through a diaspora and are are sort of like wandering the world and in different pockets language becomes their homeland if you think about like uh like yiddish which is speaking speaking i'm judging right now <laughs> which is spoken by ashkenazi jews so specifically eastern european jews mm. uh Yiddish is, it's mostly German with some Hebrew and some Russian, but it's kind of become the homeland since there is no actual physical homeland for Eastern European Ashkenazi Jews. Or if you look at uh, uh, the Roma people, the people who used to be referred to as gypsies <clears throat> or are still referred to as gypsies, but that's a derogatory term. So uh, their language, again, because they don't have a homeland, their language has become their homeland. So if we want to really get to know other cultures and societies, one of the first things to do is look at, you know, not only what your language is, but what do you hold dear in language and what do you think of as bad in language? So if I could get, and I won't say these words because then, I mean, even it's ridiculous that we can have a conversation around language and there are certain words that I just can't say because it will turn people off right away, even though I'm talking about why why we think of a certain word is so negative but if you think about like the worst thing you can call a woman in english rhymes with um brunt runt yeah. <laughs> i was trying runt. to think of something that wasn't runt uh, <laughs> um that's just a word for genitalia so what does it say about us that the worst thing that we call someone is the worst thing that you can call someone who's female is genitalia. Mm. Uh, what does that say about what we think of women and <clears throat> how we both glorify and demonize their sexuality and glorify and demonize them <clears throat> based on how their sexuality is expressed? <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. Or what does it mean that uh, here's a word that I can say, interestingly enough, vagina is the term that's like, what people think of as the medical term for female genitalia, but it's only one part of female genitalia. Like there's so much more to female genitalia. There's, you know, the labia and the vulva and the crown jewel of them all, the clitoris, which is nowhere near, well, it's near the vagina, but it's not in the vagina. So what does it say about us that, that we've come, that we have narrowed female genitalia down, which is all this, all these wonderful things to just the part that is there for the purpose of reproduction mm. the the vagina is the canal that leads to the uterus so but the clitoris is not in the vagina it's you know to the north of the vagina so what does that say about us and and like how we think of this medical term for female genitalia is actually not incorporating all female genitalia it's completely ignoring the best part of female genitalia which again is the clitoris, mm. which is the only organ that is completely dedicated to pleasure. It has no other function. That's not true on men. Men don't have a a, a one organ uh, dedicated to just pleasure. So without a dual use, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll we can do let's do a whole hour on that topic uh, <laughs> down the road, but. <clears throat> The C word, have you been referred to that? Um, obviously, I don't think I have, at least to my face, but I'm sure every woman 
has been called that or or it's it's such a terrible term yeah and if so how did that make you feel or what what do you you know we're talking about language and so if if somebody if you heard let's say you're one of your students walking out of the room right and you they just don't like you and they're like you know she's such a c word how would you take that you know (laughs) Um, so yeah I've been called that uh probably more times than I've been called my first name or maybe that's like (laughs) on par with each other but uh, I used to really hate that word. Um, when I was growing up, I was called it a lot by my dad. Oh, I just brought the, the mood down. Um, <laughs> but I was, I mean, my dad would call, you know, everybody in our household that. Uh, and uh, so for a long time, it was this like, really like shameful, you know, shameful term. It, it like triggered all these kind of shameful feelings in me. And so I wouldn't say it. I wouldn't go anywhere near the word. And then I started thinking probably in my early twenties, like, well, why am I running away from this? You know, literally running away from the word and running away from the trauma that is triggered by that word. I have to really feel what that means so that I can understand it so that I can you know, move on from that trauma. So I started really like exploring the word, thinking about like what it triggered and all the feelings that it triggered. And after that, I mean, I just freaking love that word. It's just this. Uh, I wish <laughs> that I could use it all the time mm-hmm. in everyday conversation because it's this fantastic word. And I know a lot of people hear that and they're like, no, it's so negative. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it, you know, to be called that, to be called the C word? And let's say, yeah, one of my students walked out and was just like, what a, uh, <laughs> I think it, I would be probably somewhat hurt to hear a student say that, but at the same time, what does it mean? It means that you're not following a standard of femininity that that follows a very specific idea of how women are supposed to present themselves, women are supposed to act, women are supposed to, to shy away from certain ideas around sexuality or expressing their sexuality, women are supposed to shy away from certain words that might degrade them, you know, women are supposed to shy away from tattoos, like... <laughs> Women are, are the, num- the number of people who have told me that they don't like tattoos on women. It's like, well, <laughs> then don't be a woman and get a tattoo, you know, like uh, this idea that you can express how you feel about how I'm going to, to present myself and how in presenting myself or expressing myself somehow puts me in a category of not being the right type of woman. If that right type of woman is a C word, then yes, I'm very happy to be that type of woman. I would rather be somebody who is has agency over myself and if that turns me into someone you think of as a c-word well then that's that's okay with me that's that's why I love that word yeah Uh, that's really well said I and and another euphemism for that word is like the p-word rhymes with wussy um and that men get called that and so like every time in my entire life I've ever not been peer pressured into doing something another man has said that you know you're such a p word right can't we and, say that word in reference to a cat yeah like, we could say pussycat yeah pussycat? <laughs> i call my pussycats pussycat all the time that's what that's what uh sophia called dorothy in in the golden girls she'd always refer pussycat. to her pussycat. yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> that's right um, but it's it's sort of like a sign of, of of weakness, you know, like, oh, you don't wanna go to the strip club with me. 
you're such a vagina you know that's what they're saying right you know it's like you might as well have one you know and that is a I know every man will never say to anyone out loud that that's how they talk and that's how men talk they they private you know they like refer to weak men as that um but then men can use the term too you know like like it it becomes when we talk about trauma when you're constantly told because i mean whatever i'm not going to get into myself because people are like oh stop josh but but you know i told people that that my dad regularly referred to me as as a c word but that's all right you you keep your trauma to yourself (laughs) (laughs) um you know i'm you know i've been referred to a lot in my life uh, and i've been bullied and i've been called the p word a lot of times because i'm not super her you know i don't have that sort of thing about me and i do have a layer of sensitivity and all that whatever um it traumatizes you, right? You start to think, well, maybe I am, maybe there's something wrong. Maybe, maybe I am like a weak man, you know? And then I used the word one time around a woman, you know, like, oh my God, I feel like such a blank, you know, cause I didn't, you know, such a wussy. And then I'm called on it. Like, don't say that because you're basically using it in a way that implies that you're inferior, that you're weak. And actually the P word is power you know it's like that's this thing that it's actually the opposite it's not weak it's it's something you know that that you know so it's it's unfortunate that we use these terms and then like what's a mean guy he's a dick you know or you know he's he's an ass you know whole you know it's like there's the you're always i don't know why it is that we're referred to negative mean bad things having to do with that part of the body right you know it's like well you got screwed it's like (laughs) i thought is that a bad thing is that what's the deal uh yeah i think i think um again it tells us a lot about our culture that we we everything bad gets referenced back to sex or something to do with sex and the idea that you know pussycat without the cat is this negative term for men tells you that uh, again we think that women's genitalia is the worst thing <laughs> that our society has to offer right like uh whether it's getting thrown back at a woman in the in the c word form or whether a man is being called it in some form because he's weak it's it's again saying like women's genitalia female genitalia is the worst thing that we have to offer which is so interesting because you know maybe that's why they're constantly trying to control it uh, <laughs> since it's such a such a terrible thing but uh but you know betty white again golden girls reference but betty white said uh what did she say she said something along the lines of um you know i don't know why this is a term that's used for weakness if you've ever been around a vagina that thing can take a pounding and and keep going right like <laughs> um i'm paraphrasing betty white but uh or, but yeah, yeah it, it's interesting that strength then again goes back to genitalia and is male genitalia is uh cojones or balls or whatever that mm-hmm. the idea that like if you have strength if you're going to do something if you're going to if you have any chutzpah 
at all, then you're using your male genitalia as opposed to your female genitalia, which is weakness. And so if you think about testicles, I mean, those are some of the most afraid. <laughs> sensitive. I mean, okay, let's go with sensitive. But like, even <laughs> if they're a little bit cold, they like wrap themselves back up in the body, right? Like they're so like uh, sensitive to just even the slightest temperature change that they'll move depending on temperature change. If you just do like a little flicking or a little, I mean, it's it half the men who just heard me say that cringe. So how come that- I almost said don't <laughs> flick and I stopped myself, but since you said it, I'll say, yeah, yeah I cringe, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, that- <laughs> that that body part comes to mean strength when it's this very sensitive as you say uh part of the body it's a really weak part of the body as opposed to female genitalia which i mean i had a gigantic baby come out of mine right like and it's still there it wasn't like obliterated off the face of the earth even after i had this huge fully formed almost toddler child to come out of it so what is really actually strong versus highly sensitive um and why does why do we switch what they actually are and like have the opposite be the word for strength or, or word for uh weakness i had this conversation with my cousin once and he said oh it's because being brave is being afraid and doing it anyway and he somehow turned that into to testicles are always afraid but you do it anyway like i uh i'm not so sure about that um was was that like just off the top of the head or did they have to think about that for a while because that's a pretty interesting little narrative there i know i don't know it was in it was how do we have I think we had that exchange like over text or over it was it yeah I think he had time to think about so it. So they're but. warriors actually they're 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 exactly. valiant. Yeah <laughs> they're 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 shaken and squishing themselves up in the cold but they're like I'm gonna go and do it anyway. That's that's what it is to have cojones I guess. Um <laughs> and maybe I mean maybe like but but really, I think it's the more obvious, which is male genitalia is seen as strong. I mean, look at we li look at like every sign of a victory in in war. What is what is it emphasized with? What is it commemorated with? A gigantic penis, like every obelisk that they erected, literally erected hmm. after um, winning a battle in Europe, winning a battle here in North America. They literally just put up an obelisk which is a giant penis mm -hmm. the washington monument this this monument that's supposed to encapsulate americana is a huge penis and when i say that people are like no it's not are you kidding have you seen all first of all have you seen a penis but also have you seen all the pictures around people like pretending to you know like have you seen people take those pictures where they're yeah. like yeah <laughs> <laughs> So I don't think I'm the only one who sees it, but, and one thing I don't understand is why people argue when I say like, that is a giant penis. Like the Eiffel Tower is a giant penis. Mm -hmm. and people are like, no, it's not. It's just a, well, of course it is. I mean, we live in a society and these are like, I just named two societies that think of masculinity as kind of the ultimate goal in life mm -hmm. um, as the best thing ever. And so it would make sense that those societies, those cultures would 
would uh, enshrine what it is to be masculine, like boil down what it is to be masculine to genitalia, and then literally turn that into a shrine. So it, ma it makes sense that if you live in a society that is paternal, that sees masculinity as the ultimate strength, that you would then use a symbol of masculinity to show that strength, to show that, that yeah. That makes sense? Yeah, no, it, 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 it's everywhere. I mean, if you're ever on a road trip and you just start sort of like looking at the architecture of things and buildings and you're like, there's a million ways to design these things, but there's a very common pattern in how things are, are designed. And it's typically because men have been doing these things and they sort of see uh, power in a certain kind of <clears throat> symbol because it's reflective of what they would hope they would be and so i think that's that's definitely true um to a large degree um do you have any like hard stops like thresholds for language where you are engaging with somebody and you're like nope we i'm not gonna go there i mean or i'm i i need to stop you there um, i you're throwing around this term and I don't like it. You know, do you have anything like that? Or is it pretty much you're always going to be able to stop them? Obviously, the N word, I think we would agree when that comes up, you're just like, okay, stop. Um, well, uh, yeah. You know, like, those kind of terms. But like, are there other terms that you're just like, whoa, we can't continue talking about our days. I need to address that you just said that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, and we can agree that if somebody just, like rolled out the n-word that neither of us would be comfortable with like okay <laughs> yeah yeah okay um i don't know you know it depends uh I, I think it really depends on the context i mean um it's hard to say because because i like to embrace the words that are used against that are supposed to be like negative connotations of of women mm -hmm. can we say because again, talking about animals, um, you know, the other really negative term for women, or one of the other really negative terms for women is the B word. Can I say that word? Yeah. Um, so like bitch, which yeah. is, again, I like to embrace that word, even though I know there's a lot of women and people in general who are uncomfortable with that word. Anything that's been used negatively against women, I like to think of as like, okay, well, it's been used negatively against women as a way to control women, as a way to control their sexuality, their their reproduction, um, all of that. So if you're going to use it to to minimize women into a very specific role and feminine, and I'm not saying feminine identity is bad, but a specific idea of a feminine identity, well, then I'm going to embrace that. That's something that I'm going to go for. So, but again, it, you know, it depends. I mean, it, it really depends if someone just just because the 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 flip side of that is using that term in a way where let's say let's say a student gets mad at me for whatever reason they get a bad grade on a test they don't like something that i say they can minimize me to a bitch and use ten thousand years of misogyny to just turn me into instead of me as a thinking individual turn me into just this one sort of mass um 
it's a it's a way of dismissing me based on really on my genitalia like not even on a concept of gender but based on my genitalia so you know you want to depending on the conversation you want to kind of address that like why are you why is that your go-to why why if somebody who's gay makes you mad would you call them the the gay f word <laughs> be specific between the f word and the gay f word right like why why is that your go-to when you feel weakened or when you feel threatened by something to take whatever marginalization that might be associated with this person marginalized identity that might be associated with this person why do you use that as a way to just dismiss them what does that say about about you about your 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 go-to is to dismiss somebody based on a marginalized social concept right and say like well it doesn't matter what she thinks because she's just a bitch right which is basically saying like it doesn't matter what she thinks she's a woman and um in the end we all know that women are run by their uteruses and uh, that's really all they're good for you know yeah. <laughs> so yeah i, I think uh, it it would really depend on the conversation and how someone is using that term and like in in class for example when i talk about how we in some classes i talk about how like where certain words come from and and um and why they're used like the gay f word for example it's got to be a better way of saying it than that but um but you know that's a term for a, a bundle of sticks and the reason that that became a term for like a derogatory term for gay people is because they used to burn gay people with witches but they would just throw them directly onto the fire instead of the the stake that they would use for witches so what I try to say to students when we're talking about like, because I'll inevitably get the, well, you can't say anything anymore. Well, you can, you can say whatever you want, but what are you contributing to? You're contributing to a history of burning people alive because of who they're in love with. You're contributing to a history of, you know, incarcerating, murdering, enslaving people based on their skin color. You're uh, contributing to a history of killing, murdering, beating, controlling people based on their on their genitals um so so yeah so i i i think again the the conversation of like do i have a hard out with certain words it you know it depends it depends who am i talking to yeah. how are they using it is it a way of just dismissing people because you don't like what's coming from them but you can always turn them into this one thing this one part of their identity and dismiss that because we all know that whatever that part of their identity is is something that is less than you know what i mean yeah no and and i think that's what's just so important though is that <clears throat> being able to hear it and explain is such a more valuable rich solution in the long run than instant shut down if you're in a position to do that as you said if you're an ally and if you're not um you know the victim of that trauma and it's like i'm not gonna have that conversation but it's so important to be able to do that if we actually if our goal is actually progress and change you know and not division because we're, we're stronger with as many of us as possible going in the same direction as opposed to splitting and hoping they just kind of die out which is not good either it's well, sort of the, the, re the reason that oh you know because i've heard that 
over and over again, like, oh, we just need to wait for these people to die. I mean, there's more people coming up behind them. Like, <laughs> yeah. They have kids too. <laughs> yeah, like I'm, I'm old enough now to see that, you know, the generation that I thought, oh, once they're gone, everything will be great. No, there's plenty of people who have replaced them. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so the dying off doesn't work. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because when we talk about language and words in the context of real life and then there's media and there's popular culture and there's music and i was just sort of thinking about how artists and musicians can get away with a lot um, and get away with meaning they, they they can use a lot of these terms that have been um, uh, offensive in the context of art and i was thinking about like we both probably listened to Eminem in the 90s and maybe we still do <laughs> um and you think to um lose yourself before my final interview with the president uh at the college so yeah, yeah. that's maybe I should have listened to that one too yeah um <laughs> I was probably listening to some Alanis Morissette song about bouncing back um but <laughs> we talk about um Eminem and and artists like if you've listened to those songs they're so offensive in a literal sense every word that we're not saying on this he probably said in the first minute of most of his songs mm -hmm. and yet I don't know how you feel my sense is you probably have respect for his artistry even though he was crazy offensive um why do you think that like we can listen to some people say these things and be like, oh yeah, that's great. That's funny. They can do it. But then if you go, you know, repeat it, it's not like, what do you think that's all about? Yeah, I think, well, you know, with, again, so art in general can be used to look at something that's culturally, socially, uh, taboo or hidden or you know we're we're not supposed to talk about certain things they make people uncomfortable you're not supposed to talk like you said you go to a job interview there's certain words you're not going to say if you do say them you know you're just not going to get the job right um so art is a great way of talking about those taboo subjects bringing them to light playing with them making fun of them I mean even like right behind me I've got a Georgia O'Keeffe picture back there and Georgia O'Keeffe was famous for taking flowers and making them look I mean they already look a lot like female genitalia and bringing that conversation again female genitalia is something that is so taboo in our in our culture that we literally use it for like the worst things you can think of whether it's the worst thing you can call a woman or the worst thing you can call a man so playing around with that and bringing that to a conversation where it's something that represents beauty and uh it makes it okay to talk about and like why are we so afraid of this genitalia so art serves this incredible purpose it is you know it's what makes us human um but then you have to look at certain things like Eminem for example the amount that he uses words like bitch and uh and the the f word specific to gay people just screams to me that he has you know been like his toxic masculinity is something that completely 
has overtaken his entire life. I mean, his entire perspective of the world is clearly impacted by his own insecurities around his masculinity, his sexuality. A lot of people, and there's been a lot of studies on how homophobia comes from people who are closeted. You know, I don't think that's 100% true. I think there's plenty of people who are closeted who are homophobic. But I also think there's a lot of people who have been raised with an idea that to be masculine is something that is very specific to, again, this toxic ideology. Um, and that when, and and they've felt so much pressure their entire life to show that and to to prove themselves as this type of strength that we associate with, or that society might associate with what it means to be masculine. And then they see someone come along <laughs> who's not following those rules, right? So you, you have someone who's been traumatized trying to prove to the world how masculine they are by following this sort of conditioning of toxic masculinity. And then you have someone who comes along and like paints their nails or just like completely throws off this idea of that they've been, that's been pushed on them and that they've been, you know, cloaking themselves with and I think that 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 is very uh I, I think it's very telling when you see someone who has has so clearly been conditioned to think that this type of masculinity is how they're supposed to be and they forced themselves probably traumatized themselves and been traumatized trying to follow it and then when they see someone who's like I'm not going to follow that <laughs> you know mm -hmm. it's like, wait a minute why have I been doing it this entire time yeah so I, that's, that's all, that's what I hear when I hear Eminem, I hear him and you know, it, the other side is he has all of this power because he's someone who's so, you know, he's been in the, the public eye for so long and him using those words, whether he's traumatized or not, what is it allowing for? What is it supporting? Um, who is kind of he I can hear him fighting with his toxic masculinity at the same time he's almost uh a lot like what's the word I'm looking for condoning toxic masculinity do you know what I'm saying condemning no not condemning uh -huh. yeah I don't think he's condemning toxic masculinity do you I think well I think he's, um, he's evolved like I think he's like in his I'm much older and wiser mode today, as opposed to the early stuff that made him super, super famous. But yeah, he's yeah condoning, I think in the right, he's sort of- um, In his earlier work, at least. Acknowledging that it's okay to feel this way. And I think that that goes into, obviously this is much bigger than language now, but I think it goes into the disaffected youth and the poor, um, disgruntled, sort of part of our culture and our society that doesn't necessarily get the the platform to be able to talk about how horrible their life is and then when they start talking about it there's all these other people who connect with that and they're like oh yeah and that's my life too and I've been told to not use these words and he's using them and he's funny. And I think also there's just so much to be said about like great writing, like writing 
really leads to a lot of forgiveness in the sense of people will hear you if it's presented in a way and it's written in a way or it's spoken in a way that tells a story that is makes sense that resonates and that is clear with people and so that's the difference between an you know lose yourself which is a journey song with a it's a rocky movie with a positive <laughs> outcome as opposed to the same message poorly constructed mm -hmm. and I think that's part of what makes that person appealing and that person's music appealing. And it's the same, we've talked about artists like George Michael and Eminem are like the same person, but like opposite sides in terms of, they both dealt with like this self-loathing in their mm -hmm. early music. And then they, you know, he, Eminem went from talking about, you know, Pamela, lee anderson in a like vulgar way and right. date rape and under it you know like all horrible stuff to empowering people about giving your all for one moment to be successful and how do how do they do that it's it's through like an evolution of art and music and george michael you know he goes from the tight white shorts singing I'm your man or wake me up before you go go to blowing up Sony music and talking about he's now free from this manufactured identity and so I think that there's there's an evolution and that's why we it goes back to the whole language thing it's like sometimes you just gotta let people be messy and stupid and see where it goes because you don't you don't get the genius if you don't have people feeling free enough to make mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes are in public. Right. Yeah. And, you know, owning up to those mistakes too. I don't know, has Eminem ever reconciled with what might have, what he might see now as a mistake in his earlier life? Or does he see it as like an evolution of his artistry or? He made up with his mother. I know yeah, that. I know um, that. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. I think his way of doing it is sort of like just not making those kinds of music, you know? And like, I mean, he would never make an album today like his debut album. Instead, it would right. be more about like his sort of his self issues and how that works. But it's that, that, that language is so important in terms of how you how you communicate you know do you, you mentioned when you're you're grading papers you don't focus on like grammar like so you won't correct those kinds of things no. um and and i were you always that way or is that a is yeah. that something you changed with no i've i've i mean as long as i've been teaching i've yeah. always followed that uh because i because i learned that you know when i was teaching esl which was in my early 20s and so when i started teaching at the college, um, it was much, well, not that much later, but later. And so I'd already kind of gone into it with that philosophy of, of how to, how to have come, like allow people to think critically analyze, figure out, figure, like work their way through a thought, work their way through an idea. Um, and then, you know, English teachers, other people can worry about the, 
the grammatical part of it or the conjugation of verbs or whatever. But for me, my classes are about critically thinking. They're about learning to think. And again, like, I don't want to make any English teachers out there mad who are like, <laughs> we're teaching. I know you're teaching critical thinking as well, but, um, but what I'm saying is, uh, and, and you, you're teaching journalism, so you're not going to allow people to just turn in something that has no structure to it or no, you know, that's the purpose of your class. One of the purposes of what you're teaching is how to write something. Well, what I'm teaching is how to think about something. And so the writing part of it and the way that you deliver it isn't what you want to work on first. The first thing you want to work on is playing around with the idea. And if you think about any, any academic, I mean, any one of us got to the position we're in now because we did that to some degree, like we weren't born understanding institutionalized racism. We weren't born understanding a history of marginalizing people and, and hiding it in clever ways. We all had to hopefully are learning, continuing to learn, uh, learned those things. And we did, like, if I think about, you know, um, how I thought about things when I was 20 years old, 18 years old. I mean, I, I think that the core of me was still there but I just didn't know enough to necessarily think about things in the same way. I didn't know enough about the world or about people. I mean, there were no, um, there were no trans people when I was growing up. I mean, obviously there were trans people when I was growing up, but people were deep underground. They were deep in the closet. Uh, so if you ask me about trans people when I'm 19, I probably wouldn't have the same things to say now just because I really had no understanding of what it was to be trans. And mm. uh, so, yeah, you have to learn about and go through an evolution to get to a point and not that, and to can continue hopefully. Um, but that requires a certain amount of trial and error and putting things out there and thinking about them and thinking like, no, that's not right. <laughs> and if so you're not- allowed to go through that express that at least to one other person then how are you going to get to a point where you kind of understand the fallacy of what you had originally thought or how you might have been clouded by internalized misogyny internalized misogyny internalized shame internalized toxic masculinity whatever mm -hmm. yeah it's it's really good to hear you say that because there's so many people who think they understand higher education and they think like you walk into a classroom and dogma and <clears throat> you're gonna just like you know sort of train these young students to think liberally and or think like you know a, um, liberal ideology and it's really not like I'm, obviously there's some teachers who might do that but most are focused on the material and it's a place of safe in the sense of like you can't learn when you're feeling judged and so it's, you know, I think it's good for people to hear that it doesn't matter who's in your classroom, it's a safe place for them to, to talk and get through these issues. Um, I wanted to sort of ask you a little bit about what I get sometimes, which is sort of this like a mansplaining term, you know, we're talking about language is... People tell you you mansplain? No, stu students have never told me of mansplain. Um, it, it doesn't come up much other than like a joke and a couple of my journalistic peers. Um, there's another show, you know, that I'm on sometimes and, you know, it'll come up when I start talking about an issue I'm knowledgeable about. 
and I'm wondering like what you think of that term and, and if it's a real term to you and what does that mean? Um, and how do, how do men articulate knowledge of things without coming across as speaking for women? Uh, well, I love that term. I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, finally, there's a word for that. <laughs> uh, but just like any term, you know, it can be overused or used in the wrong context. Uh, but, you know, mansplaining, for example, uh, when I was pregnant with my daughter, um, I'm standing in line at a coffee shop or something. And this man starts telling me about pregnancy. Like he's in line with me and he start, and I, I didn't know him at all. And he just starts telling me about what I was going to feel as a pregnant woman, the state, the things that were going to happen to my body. And I was like six months pregnant, you know, I'm like, I think I know. Uh, and he <laughs> continued to explain, like, I mean, and somebody might be hearing this and, and thinking, oh, well, maybe he was telling you something that, you know, you didn't know, or that he thought wasn't, you know, no, he was telling me very basic things about what happens to the body, how you, how you get cravings, how you get sick and like, and not trying to empathize, not trying to say like, oh, has this happened? It was, well, and you know, then this is going to happen. I'm like, yeah, I get it. And then he <laughs> went on to, then he asked, asked, you know, do you know what you're having? And I knew I was having a girl by then. Um, and he started to tell me what it was like to be a girl when you're and like how difficult it could be to be a girl growing up and especially in junior high and you know the ways that that girls can treat other girls in junior high I mean just it was amazing and I said at one point like I know you know I was a girl in junior high at one point and he's like well being a girl in junior high in Southern California I was like I went to Santa Barbara junior high uh <laughs> very aware of what it's like. I mean, even after me telling this person, I have lived this experience. Why are you telling me what it's like to be a girl in junior high? He kept explaining it to me. That is mansplaining. Telling somebody something that they would have lived through, that they clearly would have experienced and telling them, warning them hmm. that experience as though they had no understanding of it. Hmm. And so that that term mansplaining comes from a good place, which is which is any person who, so if you have any marginalized group who uh, there's a sort of cultural, whether it's internalized or, or overt, this understanding that like, oh, this group needs help, whether it's this group needs help because, you know, they're just not a smart group of people or those like getting back into social classist, racist, whatever ways of dividing people. You know, there's there's um, ideas that certain people just aren't that smart or certain people just aren't that cultured or certain people. And, you know, one one of those is is women are just uh, caught in the headlights and, and need help navigating their life. And so when you have that as part of a culture or a society where you have sexism or racism and you internalize some of it, it's part of an institutional cultural structure around you you come to believe and and think like oh i need to help this person i need to i need to show this person the way because i know the way because i'm one of the gifted smart incredible people in society and this is one of the ignorant sad lost people in society so any person in a position of privilege and there's lots of different positions of privilege you can be in needs to question okay i'm talking to somebody i'm talking them i'm I'm talking to them in a way 
where maybe I think I'm doing the right thing, but how is my privilege blinding me right now so that I'm actually patronizing and, and condescending to them instead of, instead of actually, instead of being an ally or being helpful right now. I think any person with any type of privilege, whether it's white privilege, it's male privilege, it's heterosexual privilege, whatever type of privilege you're working with, are you acting as an ally or are you condescending and patronizing this person and you can't see it because you have, you're so overwhelmed by your privilege? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's perfect. That's, that's really well said. And I think that people use the term broadly anytime a man starts to like explain things and <clears throat> clearly there's different like levels of that and, and when men try to tell you how to what it's like to be pregnant or to be a girl in junior high that's like the textbook definition right. of explaining for right. sure um and I see it a lot too even as me and I see it uh generationally uh you know I'm not young, I'm not right in the middle, you know, the age thing, but um, old men, inter old white men interrupt me all the time. They always have. Um, we're getting back to language. So maybe a sentence comes out and it's not phrased in a way they would say it. They're going to take over because they're either impatient or they think they're helping me or they want to show me how smart they are. So there's a generational thing and um, I will literally stop communication with anyone who's like interrupted me. Like if I can't feel safe to like talk, then I'm not going to talk to you. It's not worth my time. It happens in the workplace, right? It just happens all the time. And then I think that I've seen it with women too. It, 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 so whatever I experience, double it with women or whatever exponent you want to put on it. It's worse uh because there's there's this thing that men are raised with in this western culture of you need to be the one to take over when needed okay and that means also in language you know and one of the things we learn in journalism in teaching is you know if you're interviewing somebody you don't finish their questions you don't finish their answers you don't try to put their words in your own words because you can't quote yourself and so one of the most effective things you can do in journalism when interviewing somebody is to shut up and get comfortable with pauses and silence you know and if something's silent for like 30 seconds okay rephrase your question but some of the best stuff when you're interviewing somebody comes after their silence because they're thinking right and we want them to think before they speak and so I think that that's a, I, I, that's a trait, a, a, a sort of a good thing to learn. Anyone who's watching is that young women do not, women do not need to have their words repackaged and put in a nice little bundle. And now you've endorsed it, old man, and now it's good and normal. And we just see that in group communication too. I think me, you and I maybe have talked about that. Um, I know this happens to me all the time. I will say something in a group, not much reaction. The same older dude in power will say it. And everyone's like, whoa. And I'm like, that is so weird. Is it, I don't know why. It, it's just because I I know why is that even though I tend to ramble, this is Josh, I can talk a lot. 
I don't talk, you know, my cadence, I don't talk in a way of like, I just don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, this is how it is. And a lot of men, that's just the only way they talk is like, step one is this, step two is this, step three is this, and then we're going to, the outcome is here. And I yeah. don't do that. I do like step 12, nine, six, three, one. I'm just kind of, but it is so true. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, I think Bobby Darren said, uh, people hear what they see. So again, if we live in, in a society that turns certain people, whether it's because of skin color, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, whatever, into the ones who are supposed to know, and whether we admit it to ourselves or not, we've come to accept that, uh, that, that, yeah, we have that bias that when you see a white cis man talking, you think, uh he knows what he's talking about i better listen as opposed to you see somebody who doesn't fit that description you're like man it's rambling <laughs> get to your point already um and- i've never been told that ever <laughs> <laughs> well and i i think you know you said um it's worse you were describing kind of what happens to you and you said it's worse for women but you know i think it's all bad it's all bad like it's it's all bad to either mansplain or to white splain or to you know whatever our old splain like <laughs> however you want to put it, whatever offensive term you want to put it in um it's all sort of the same thing where you're assuming that you know more because of your position in society because you're whatever versus this person which clearly doesn't know as much of, as you do or doesn't understand the world in the same way that you do and it's interesting i mean I'm, I'm always interested in how, in like the ways in my life that people have told me like what I should say or what I shouldn't say, you know, like, uh, um, I said, somebody was dead once to somebody and they said, you need to say past they passed. And I was like, Oh, sorry, but they are dead. Um, (laughs) or, uh, I, I, um, this probably happens to you too because people don't always understand what is bigoted or not bigoted and they tend to sort of anything that sounds like it might be bigoted they like back away from without really thinking like wait a minute what am I actually saying uh by telling someone they shouldn't call themselves this or they shouldn't say this because I I can't imagine how many women might tell me when I just said that I embrace the word bitch or the the c word how many women and men who would tell me oh, uh, you shouldn't call yourself that or you shouldn't embrace that word and telling me that like my experience and my thought process with this isn't correct and and I've clearly been jaded. Um, I've had people tell me not to call myself a Jew before. Like I, I refer to myself as a Jew and I've had non-Jewish people say, I had this one colleague of ours tell me once, uh, you shouldn't call yourself that. And she was not Jewish. And I said, but that's what I am you know, um, that's a descriptive word. I understand that people have used it in a derogatory way in the past, but it is a descriptive word. It's not a derogatory word that was made up for a group of people. And so if you are uncomfortable with that term, you might have some, I don't know, anti-Semitism buried somewhere in there that, and, and okay, I didn't say all that, but she said, my husband's Jewish and he doesn't like that term. You know, it's a, it's a bigoted term. It's an anti-Semitic term. And I wanted to say to her, uh, I think that your husband has some internalized anti-Semitism, but 
we weren't going to go there. I just basically said like, well, it's a descriptive term. It's what I am. And if somebody sees that as derogatory, then um, maybe they should question why they see what I am as something negative. And it's probably similar for you. I mean, have you had a similar experience with, because you're Mexican, right? So like the, I think a lot of people, I've heard people whisper that term before where they're like, well, they're Mexican. It's like, that's a nationality. You know, you can say it. There's nothing wrong with being Mexican. If you think that, if you think that you can't say the word Mexican without it being insulting, then maybe you should explore <laughs> why you think it's an insulting term when it's a descriptive term. It's a, it's a, and it doesn't even mean any, like we, we tend to, to attach color to culture. And we think like, oh, Mexican means brown. No, it doesn't. Any Mexican person has a redheaded cousin or some green eyed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Has yeah, that no, happened to you? Have, have, have you had like had to have the discussion where people are like, is it okay if I call you Mexican? Are you well, it's it's with with me, it's like um some people all they see is Mexican person that's all I, josh is right? right and then there's other people who are like oh he's just like kind of like a white dude you know and so that i think and i think that's a a, a problem that that people of mixed uh race experience and that they're judged by that in, in terms of like you're too mexican you're too white you're not enough mexican you're not enough white I cannot hang out with surfer bro dudes to save my life. Um, I just don't know what to talk about. I'm too serious. I'm too intense. I don't want to talk about the wave. I just don't care. And, and I don't understand it. Right. I want to talk about what we talk about. Right. But if I'm hanging around with family and stuff, you know, it's like, I'm not Mexican enough. I'm a sellout. And it's like very, like you just don't feel connected and involved. And then there's the whole language thing too that that we're judged by is like, oh, you don't speak Spanish, then you're not a real one, you know. It's like, well, what is that? What does that mean? Um that why are we judging people on that? You know, I don't know. Has anyone ever judged you, Jordy, on like you don't speak Spanish, Jordy? Uh wow. <laughs> People have judged me on that because well, because academia. <laughs> well, and because I live in Southern California, and yeah. uh, you know, I've been married to like multiple people of, uh, like, I was married to a Mexican uh, man and a man from Spain. It's like, why aren't you speaking Spanish? I speak some Spanish. I mean, yeah. un poquito. Yeah. But I didn't yes. take it to school. Yeah, but it's sort of a, it's just a weird thing. And then the more comfortable people get with you like if they if you become friends and close then you start to hear them make the like mexican jokes like in front of you and you're just like wow i didn't know like being this close meant that you could make jokes about how hard i work and i'm how i'm always late i didn't realize that that meant i gave you that privilege to do that you know and it's sort of i'm actually not always late i make a point to always be early so no one will say that to me and when they do say it it really pisses me off but we're not have you made that point when <laughs> we meet? <laughs> What's that? Oh yeah. <laughs> have you made that point when you and I meet? Because uh, I'm not sure. No, I don't really care what other people do. I, I mean, I just like I if I try to be early for me, and if somebody's early or late, whatever, I don't I don't judge on that. But I don't want to be judged, so I, right. I purposely don't 
to do that. Or yeah, if I'm constantly late and canceling plans or something, yeah, judge me for it because that's irresponsible. That's actually behavior. That's not stereotype and expectation. Before we go, I wanted to make one thing is it's it's died. It's dead. And in journalism, because students will do this. Students will write because one of the assignments is obituaries. They learn how to write news obituaries and they'll always write passed away or passed on. And I'm always telling them no, because that's a euphemism. We don't know. We don't, you can believe what you want. Right. But here's what we do know. We do know they're dead like right. in this world. Okay? Whether they went somewhere else, maybe we'll find out someday. Hopefully we will. But this is a story that needs to appeal to everyone of all religion. I mean, just as many right. people as we can without offending them. And uh, so, yeah, I agree. And that's the thing with like, journalists was all about language and accuracy and precision and, and trying not to offend. And there's plenty of terms that we're constantly changing. The Associated Press style book every year gets updated. They add new terms. They take away terms. They say these things are are correct you know latin x is we didn't talk about that too much but like that's a term that is found its way into the style book but it's super controversial because not all latinos want that term some people actually think it's offensive while others think it's offensive to say latino it's like so hard to figure out and then people journalists would get accused of being you know something ist like, no, it's just that the conversation's constantly changing all the time with everyone on this issue and it can't please everybody. So what do you expect us to do? You know? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that is something to keep in mind with language in general is you're not going to please everyone. I mean, if I say past now because that person reprimanded me for saying dead, well, then I am uh, conjuring up a specific idea of what happens when you die which is a religious idea that you pass on to another place another life whatever uh so what happens when i say that to somebody who's like no you're dead you're in the ground it's it you're done you know <laughs> ashes to ashes dust to dust <laughs> yeah so yeah. that's the thing i mean and you know talking about uh yeah language in general it's it is a work in progress. It's it's like culture. It's constantly evolving with culture. So giving people leeway, allowing people to make their mistakes and come back from it and, and try to learn from it. I think that's the best way to, to go, go forward with language in general is uh, allowing people their mistakes and to learn from, to learn from their mistakes, right? That, mm -hmm. that we can learn from and to understand that things are constantly changing, that and that certain things are going to trigger certain people. And you can't always, you're not always going to know what that is. Like, I hate the word gooey. I'm not going to tell you why. <laughs> but yeah. and how would anybody know that that, I, that that word to me is this gigantic trigger, right? Mm -hmm. I don't like that word either. I like the word squabble. I try to I, put that in my stories as often as I can. It's just a funny word. Yeah. Yeah, my my mother used to say that word all the time in reference to me and my sister. Stop squabbling. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, um, I think this is another good conversation and I appreciate you taking time to to fit it in. So thank you. Well, and next time you want to talk about uh television? Yeah. My yeah. favorite our favorite TV shows growing up and what they mean to us. I um, will admit right now as a preview to the next one that 
any time throughout the day that I can put a Seinfeld reference in the conversation, I do it because this show's funny. But there's plenty of other shows I grew up on, like the 70s and 80s and this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, so much of what I've learned, I mean, this, when we're going to start talking and we got to go, but like people think that you go to school, you go to college, and just like your parents and your grandparents and books and blah, blah, blah. Like people grow up in different ways. And for some people, television is was their teacher for yeah. many years. And so transformative was a, a view to a to cultures and ideas outside of the very narrow culture and idea of my my family. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So that that can be our next topic. And we can talk about this guy on my shirt. That is oh, yeah. Burton, the great LeVar Burton, who was transformative to me in reading Rainbow and Star Trek. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and of course, yeah, as Kunta of course. Yeah, no, that yeah, he's definitely a great actor and warm person, and from what I've seen of him. Okay, thanks, Shorty. Have a great day. All right, bye.